it's a blessing to be with you again today. We are going to begin a new study, and this time we will be studying the book of Philemon. This is one of the shortest books in the Bible, but it is really, really rich. Now, the book of Philemon is a little bit unique. Uh, it doesn't contain any really in-depth doctrinal teaching. It's also one of the few letters in the Bible written from one of the apostles to an individual. So it's written to an individual in the church. The other ones were mostly written to leaders of the church like Titus or to Timothy. But Philemon was a layman. So what is the purpose of including the book of Philemon in the Bible? This seemingly somewhat routine correspondence between Paul and a member of the church. Well, I think this book shows us how the Bible is supposed to transform our lives. And by transforming our lives, it then transforms society from the bottom up. We'll see that in the book of Philemon, the topic of slavery is raised up. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But in short, the Bible doesn't declare any kind of a, a revolution or a rebellion on these kinds of topics, but rather as each person puts into practice in their own lives the love of the love that they should have toward God and toward their neighbor, it actually changes society from the inside out and from the bottom up. So one of the key topics in the book of Philemon will be forgiveness. We won't see that word mentioned, but we will see this concept. And so this book I'm really excited about because it fits right in even with the name of this channel, which is Study and Obey, because we see that Paul expects that the word of God, the truth of the word of God should be obeyed. It should be lived out. It should change how we live, how we interact with other people in society around us. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 3. Uh, this is the greeting. We'll talk a bit about that. And for this lesson, we'll look totally at verses 1 through 10. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul uh, always gives a nice greeting to the people he writes to. Uh, at the time, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. He says, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Uh, he was arrested in Jerusalem due to some angry Pharisees who had agitated against him. And then after spending a long time, uh, years in prison in Caesarea, without a trial, Paul finally appealed to Caesar in order to get justice. The later chapters and Acts describe Paul's journey as he was taken from Caesarea to Rome by ship. Paul spent two years there as a prisoner. But while in prison, he was allowed some amount of freedom. It doesn't look like he was just in a dungeon without any access to anything, but he had some privileges. At times, it looks like he was just under house arrest, and he was able to continue correspondence with his disciples and the various churches he was connected with. The other prison epistles include Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Now, one thing I notice when I read the first verse of Philemon is he doesn't say that he is an apostle. Now, in almost all of his other letters, he says he starts right off, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then he continues on in his letter. 
But this time he doesn't say Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's not because he wasn't. But it shows us that right off the bat, this isn't a normal letter. This is not a letter of command. It's not a letter of, you know, command that Paul is telling Philemon, you have to do this. But it's rather one of exhortation. It's not a top-down letter, but it's a man-to-man, brother-to-brother, friend-to-friend. Philemon is one of only three individuals who received a divinely inspired letter from Paul, Titus and Timothy being the others. Many scholars think that Philemon was part of the Colossian church and that Tychicus uh, took Onesimus along. We'll come into that a little bit in a minute when he delivered the letter to Colossians. Now, this letter is primarily addressed to Philemon. That's where this book gets its name. It says to Philemon. But in addition, it's addressed to Aphia, Archippus, and the church in your house. Now, Paul seemingly never misses a chance to send greetings and encouragement to more people. Uh, Some have speculated that Aphia is Philemon's wife, that Archippus is his son, and so he's basically writing to this family unit. Uh, That is, we can say, somewhat speculation, but it could be the case. And so this letter will be primarily to encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And we see that the church, a church met in his house. Uh, That tells us something about Philemon. He was hospitable. He was willing to face the persecution that might come by identifying so openly as a believer. He was probably also somewhat wealthy. Uh, He had a home large enough for a meeting to take place in. And we will see later in this book, he had a slave by the name of Onesimus, at least one. So he was somewhat wealthy. Uh, Let's also read Acts 2.46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this is how the early New Testament church conducted themselves. They met primarily in homes. Now we see that that's very, very different from the uh, megachurch movement today. And there are a lot of benefits to meeting in homes. Uh, Some of the benefits include more volunteers can pitch in and help. Uh, People can help with the food, the cleaning, and the setup. And so it it can promote a spirit of volunteerism. Uh, It also promotes closer and warmer fellowship. For our own church that I'm part of, we were a very, uh, not very large, a somewhat large, five or 600 people. Uh, but during COVID, for a while, we weren't able to meet all together. And so we met in small groups in people's homes. And actually, people really enjoyed that. People got to know each other on a much deeper level than they did before. They met new people, they made friends, they deepened friendships, and it really promoted closer and warmer fellowship. A lot of times in bigger churches, there's so many people and we don't really know them. It's very easy to come and go and not really know anybody. But in a smaller fellowship, that is much more difficult. It becomes more personal and more natural. Also, meeting in homes promotes accountability. Sometimes the anonymity of a large group means people can show up or not. They can obey the message or not. And nobody may really even notice that. Nobody will say, okay, where where is uh, Tim? I didn't see him this week. 
because maybe nobody knows who he is or it's just lost in the crowd and people don't notice. Um, but in small home fellowships, it's easier to keep one another accountable and we can go actually deeper into one another's lives. Uh, not everyone actually likes that. Some people like the anonymity. Some people do not like going deep into one another's lives. But actually growth, I think, will take place more when we are more interactive and more engaged, when we participate more in the local body. Uh, the fewer numbers of a home church means a larger percentage of people need to lead. Oftentimes, there will be more people who will volunteer to lead the group discussion or the Bible sharing. It's maybe less intimidating than doing so in a larger group. So it actually provides more opportunities for people to be equipped. Also, a home church is more reproducible. The limited size of the home means that growth needs to create more groups, more churches, rather than just building a larger facility. So the model is easier to reproduce. Also, because of the closer fellowship and accountability, it's more likely that believers' lives will be transformed and changed. Another advantage of small groups is that it saves money. That's very practical, but that means that more money can be spent on great commission activities. Sometimes large churches have a lot of focus on expanding facilities. Certainly sometimes that is necessary, but that can become a focus, sometimes too much of a focus for some groups. So what is the application? Well, here it says the church in your house. We're reminded the New Testament church met in homes. So I hope you also join a small group fellowship or Bible study group, perhaps a weekly Bible study group that meets in a home, or even consider opening up your own home or joining a home church potentially. So we see a little bit of the background, who Philemon is and who Paul is, that Paul is then going to share this letter with Philemon. Uh, let's go forward. Uh, but, but we are reminded that Paul continues to minister even when he is in prison. Now, sometimes when things are going badly for me, I become self-focused. When I'm sick, I think other people should care for me and tend to my needs. Uh, and we might tend to get more grumpy, more fussy, more frustrated when things are going badly and focus on ourselves. But Paul doesn't focus on himself. Even though he's in prison, he keeps reaching out, writing letters, and doing ministry to other people. So Paul wasn't just looking for people to come and care for him and pray for him. He kept on using his time wisely, even in prison. So for ourselves, we shouldn't use sickness or disability or persecution or age or any of these things as a reason to stop ministering for God. Maybe God has put you into a difficult situation specifically because he wants you to reach out to others in that situation, which might be even a better testimony to them. Let's go forward verses 4 through 7 as Paul starts to give words of encouragement to Philemon. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. 
So the first thing that we want to look at in these verses is Paul's prayer life. We see in almost all of the books that Paul writes, he actively prays for those he ministers to. And in almost every one of those letters, it's evident that he consistently prays for them. So this is an important lesson for us to follow that we need to consistently pray for those we reach out to, whether it's our children, our students, our Bible study members, our disciples, and our spouses. Someone said, how can you claim to love your wife if you don't pray for her? We need to be praying for one another. He says here, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. So why was Paul's ministry so effective? Was it his method? Partly, probably. Was it his education level? That didn't hurt, although God didn't require it. We see in other disciples they didn't have that. Did God bless it? Absolutely. Why did God bless him? Well, we see he was a man of prayer. And God used his prayer to accomplish great things. So do you pray regularly for the people you share with, for your coworkers, for your family and friends, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? What can we learn from Paul's prayer? Well, he didn't take it for granted. He says, I thank my God always. He realized it was God's work in their lives. He was grateful for that work. So we see Paul's positive attitude toward Philemon. He didn't say, I complain of you always in my prayers. He was kind in the way he thought of Philemon and many other believers too. He was thankful for Philemon's life, for his service. It's a healthy way to think of others, that when we think of them, when we pray for them, we should think of them in a positive way, and we should thank God for those people. That will even change our own way of thinking about them. And he also prayed for their spiritual growth. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. He prays for their spiritual growth. He prays that Philemon will be effective in sharing the gospel. He prays that as Philemon shares, others will grow in knowledge of truth and righteousness. And he's concerned that all of this is done for the sake of Christ. You don't see Paul spending much time praying for career, uh, praying for health or long life or exams. Not that, we, not that he never prayed for those things, and James were commanded to pray for the sick, but he seems to realize those aren't the most important things. Can we pray for a career, for health, for finances? Yes, we can, and we should, really. But sometimes those things become the main content of our prayer life. When for Paul, we see the main content, was, which was he was having a more long-term perspective. He was thinking about people's character and their eternity. And so he was praying more towards those things than the temporal nature of the things they face in this world. So we can spend some time evaluating our prayer life. Think about your own. What is the main content of your prayer life? Continue to pray for the sick, the weak, the poor. Pray for health, strength, provision, tests, all of these things. But go beyond this. Go deeper. Plead with God for character growth and ask God to turn weaknesses into strength. Pray rich and meaningful prayers for others. Let's go deeper to focus on long-term, to focus on what is really important. Verse 7, we see that Paul 
He says, I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. This means he cares for Philemon. This wasn't just a job for Paul. It wasn't just a routine. Philemon wasn't a, you know, a tick the box on my yearly ministry evaluation form. He's not just a number that he has to send a ministry newsletter to. He cares for him like a father, like a friend. And his success excited him. This is what we should do. When others do well, this should make us joyful. We see that Paul has an emotional connection to those he shares with. In Romans 12, 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There should be that emotional connection, that care, that loving component. It's appropriate for us to be filled with joy when we think of other believers and their service to God. What would be the opposite emotion? Uh, it could be just apathy, like I don't care. Like we just don't really care what happens to other people. But Paul did care. He has love and care for them. Now notice too uh, Philemon's testimony. He says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. It's evident from what Paul said of Philemon that he thought very highly of him. Paul had a shining testimony, the kind that Paul often encouraged other believers to have. Uh, we see the life Paul encourages others to have in like Philippians 1.27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we see Philemon seems to be doing this. He had a church in his home. He was sharing the gospel with others. And he was, here it says, refreshing the hearts of the saints. And what a beautiful statement that is. The people who went to Philemon's home left refreshed. While there, they were encouraged. They were uplifted. Their spiritual batteries were charged. His home was something like a lighthouse or an oasis. Perhaps you know people like Philemon, after you visit them, you just feel refreshed. You feel uplifted in your soul. We love to spend time with people like that. And it's important that we do the same for them as well. Proverbs 25, 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. We can refresh others by giving them an apt word, just the right word at the right time. Sometimes a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word of comfort, a word to strengthen them, maybe a word of correction, maybe just saying, let me pray for you. Let us consider how we can refresh others so that when people leave our presence, they feel that it's been a fruitful and a profitable time and they feel closer to God than they did before. So what we really see from Paul here is he's, he's an encourager. He could have found reasons to rebuke Philemon, but he focused on the positive things. In 1 Corinthians 13, 7, we learn that love believes all things. We are to look at others with a positive attitude, focusing on their good qualities, not their negative ones. Interpreting what they do in a positive light. What does that look like? Well, think about how you viewed your spouse before you got married when you were dating or in a relationship, most likely you looked at each other with rose-colored glasses. She can do no wrong. 
he is Mr. Right, and you're likely to gloss over his problems and instead highlight his strengths. On the other hand, when there's somebody we dislike, we tend to view them through another pair of glasses. We magnify their shortcomings, we gloss over their strengths, and we get irritated at every little thing they do. Paul is not like that. Paul sees people in a positive light, and he uses that to encourage them. So let's learn from Paul. Don't be negative about others and always think the worst, but let's be positive and let us encourage them. All right, let's go forward. This is the appeal. What is this letter really about? Verses 1 through 7 are laying the stage. First, verses 1 through 3, the background. Paul is a prisoner. This is who he's writing to. And then he gives some encouragement to Philemon. And now he's going to make his actual appeal to Philemon. Let's read verses 8 through 10. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Okay, this is the appeal. We see that in verse 9. He says, I appeal to you. And again, verse 10, I appeal to you. So Paul was an apostle. He could have used his authority to command Philemon to set Onesimus free and to forgive his debts. But he didn't do it in this way. Instead, he appeals to him out of love. So we can think about why did Paul do that? Why didn't Paul just command him? Well, I was thinking about this and I thought sometimes making an appeal is more effective than giving a command. For example, my six-year-old son received some money for a birthday gift and I want to teach him about generosity and giving to God. Now, I could just tell him, take 50% of that or 20% and go and put it in the offering plate. And he says, okay, dad, yes, sir. And he takes the money and he puts it in the offering plate. But maybe he doesn't understand why. Or maybe he even has a grudge. This is my money. Why are you telling me what to do with it? Or maybe he does it robotically simply because I told him to do it. As a father, I have authority. I could tell him to do that. But maybe giving a direct command is not the best way. A better way could be to talk to my son about what God has given to us and show him some simple commands from scripture about giving. And then I could make an appeal to him. And if he comes to this decision more or less on his own and gives voluntarily, he'll be more blessed by it. In Corinthians, it says that God loves a cheerful giver, not one who gives under compulsion. So Paul didn't want to compel Philemon to do that. Now, this is a tricky balance. Sometimes my boys say, Dad, when you suggest to us to clean our room, what does that mean? Can we not clean our room or do we actually have to clean our room? So yes, it's a little bit tricky. And we see that with Paul appealing to Philemon. And really, we'll see he lays it on pretty thick a few times in this chapter, making his appeal. Uh, Here, he even mentions the fact that I am an old man and I'm also a prisoner. Um, (laughs) So he really does lay it on a little bit uh, thick. But he is still making an appeal. The choice still belongs to Philemon finally. And that is a very good way to encourage others. Now, what is the application for us? The basic point is this. Maybe you have authority over someone, but that doesn't mean you always have to use it. 
Uh, for example, uh, in the book of Ephesians says that the husband is the head of the house, the head of his wife. But that doesn't mean that the husband should, going, should be going around and giving her commands. Wash the dishes, bring me my food, take care of the baby, clean the floor. No, a husband should serve. And he should actually save save that authority only to be used as a last resort. Of course, a husband and wife should talk together and should agree together. Making a gracious request is generally the better choice. For parents, telling their children what to do. Uh, maybe when children are young, toddlers, they're just learning what is authority and they're learning to obey. Yes, give them instructions and require them to obey. But as they get older, into their tween and teen years, then it may be better to make more appeals to them sometime and then train them that they will uh, voluntarily or from their own heart do what is right, not just because you force them to. Maybe you've been to a place where there was an overzealous whistleblower. Uh, I was at a water park like this before, and they they were on their loudspeakers and whistling or on the loudspeaker if you splash too hard. Um, I was actually whistled to uh, and lectured through the loudspeaker for swimming underwater at a swimming pool. That's not an exaggeration. I was just swimming, and there was a loudspeaker. You shouldn't swim under the surface of the water. But I noticed that the lifeguards were whistling, whistling loudspeakers all the time. And I felt that if they do this kind of thing all the time for very small things, then people might be desensitized to it. So it would be better to save it for emergencies. So sometimes making an appeal is better. Just because you have authority over someone, whether a teacher over a student, a parent over a child, a church leader, that doesn't mean you have to use your authority every time. And so Paul didn't hear. He chose to make a gracious appeal rather than issuing a direct command. That encouraged Philemon to sincerely evaluate Paul's request and make a personal decision from his own heart. So Paul again says, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required. I could tell you, but I'm not going to. I will just appeal. And he was making an appeal on behalf of Onesimus. That is the other main character in this book. That was the runaway slave. Uh, Onesimus had run away from uh, Philemon and it ended up in Rome. And somehow in Rome, he and Paul, their paths connected and Onesimus became a believer. And now Paul was sending him back. So, Obviously, the topic of slavery is an important one in the book of Philemon. Uh, Philemon was the master and Onesimus was the slave. So what does the Bible say about slavery? Uh, I've shared a little bit about this in other studies in the book of Titus, for example. And so you can check out that for more information. Um, but... I'll just make a few points about slavery here. Now, first of all, slavery in Old Testament times is different than what we would generally think of. Uh, the horrible slave trade and buying and selling of humans shipped around the world as property uh, is what we generally think of uh, when it comes to the slave trade. 
But in Jewish law, slavery was more akin to indentured servitude. A person who is in trouble financially would sell himself as a slave for a period of time in order to pay back a debt. During that time, he would receive room and board and employment. He would not be paid a wage. Uh, the wage was paid on the front end when the person indentured himself. Uh, during the year of Jubilee, that is once every seven years, slaves would be set free, but they could choose to remain as a slave if they wanted to. Perhaps their master was very kind and they liked their job and they liked the family and the home and things like that. Uh, we should take note that the slave trade that we think of was totally forbidden in scripture. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay, so if someone kidnaps someone else or possess someone else with the intention to sell them, they were to be put to death in the Old Testament. So this totally wipes out uh, any uh, gray area when it comes to taking people by force and then selling them uh, in other locations. Uh, in the New Testament church, the apostles were ministering primarily in various Roman provinces. They operated under a different system than the Old Testament Jewish law. So we see that Paul and the other writers were not attempting to change society through revolution. There were some slave revolts in Roman history, uh, three major ones. They tended to end with ca mass casualties for the slaves. So nowhere in the New Testament do we see um, anything that, that slavery is okay, and we also don't see that you should revolt, that slaves should revolt and rebel, and that there should be a you know a violent revolution. Biblical values instead tend to try to change society from the inside out. As individuals like Philemon and Onesimus were saved and transformed, culture could be gradually changed little by little. So it's bottom-up transformation. Now, as we live in a fallen world, culture is never totally transformed. But as believers, we are part of the body of Christ, and we are to follow kingdom values even when the culture and society around us doesn't do it, such as we should love our neighbor as our self. Now, in the Bible, Paul does say that a slave should try to gain his freedom if he can. 1 Corinthians 7.21 says, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can, gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So if you can gain your freedom, you should do that. That's wonderful. In other words, it's more desirable to be free. But if you can't, well, don't worry because you are still made in God's image. You are still a valuable member in the church and in God's kingdom. Uh, also, slaves and masters were to treat themselves, were to treat each other with kindness and respect. Um, the slave was to do his work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So it wasn't to focus on his current condition, was, but was to try to please God in the middle of that situation. And as for the masters, they were to treat their slaves, their bondservants, justly and fairly, knowing that they would have to give an account because they also have a master in heaven. Now, in the church, there wasn't to be any kind of segregation or discrimination. James 
2, I believe, talks more about that, that there shouldn't be any partiality. And here, Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Everyone is valued. Everyone is important. Everyone is loved by God, no matter your socioeconomic background or anything else. So the social norms do not apply inside the church where kingdom values were to supersede worldly ones. Believers were to love, respect, and value one another, even when the world does not. So the fact of life at that time in the first century AD was slavery existed. There was nothing that Christians could really do about it except teach the truth, to love your neighbor as yourself, to be kind, to to care for one another, and to treat each other as valuable members of God's kingdom where each person is created in the image of God. If a slave could get free, then he should. And actually, the book of Philemon, Paul seems to be implying, we'll look at this in the next uh, couple of lessons, that uh, Paul seems to be implying that Philemon should set Onesimus free. Uh, But Paul could not compel him to do that. Philemon needed to make that personal choice and sacrifice on his own as the principles of truth of scripture worked through his heart to change how he viewed the people around him and to learn to love his neighbor as himself. So we see Paul cares for Onesimus. He calls him his child. He has learned to love Onesimus and he wants to make an appeal on Onesimus's behalf. So here Paul is something of a mediator. He loves Philemon and cares for him. He loves Onesimus and cares for him. And both of them will do well if they come to the truth of scripture to see how God wants them to solve this issue. And if they learn to learn to love each other and to put each other first rather than themselves. In the next couple of lessons, we will look more at the, the appeal that Paul is making to Philemon and some of the details there. So I hope you will subscribe so that you can get the next couple of videos as we continue to study the book of Philemon and to consider how can we apply that into our lives today. Uh, In this passage, we saw that we don't have to use our authority to command others, but we can appeal to them. We need to love all of those other people in the church. And like Paul, we can encourage them, we should pray for them, and we should seek to refresh their hearts just as Philemon did. And if possible, join a home Bible study group, also as Philemon did in his house. Again, I hope this uh, this sharing was encouraging for you, and I hope to see you next time as we can st- continue in the book of Philemon. God bless. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.